As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we bring you exclusive insight and stories from David and our team of writers. And coming up today, The Athletic's Adam Crafton and Matt Slater join us to discuss the fierce debate that has broken out in English football between the Premier League, the EFL and the government in reaction to the radical plans to shake up the game led by Manchester United and Liverpool. David will also detail some of the other stories he's been working on, including, and I know this is hard to believe, an Arsenal line from his column involving Mesut Ozil. To read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full, simply head to www.theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up for just a pound a month. Well, there's only really one story to start with after this weekend, and this is the story that English football has been plunged into, in inverted commas, civil war, after it was revealed that Football League chairman Rick Parry, in collaboration with Manchester United and Liverpool, have come up with a proposal for radical changes to the game in this country. It is a remarkable story. David, the headline on The Athletic says nuclear war. And it's important, first of all, to to actually recognise where this has come from because we don't want to take credit for someone else's work. So well done to Sam Wallace at The Telegraph for getting this story. Yeah, brilliant by Sam and The Telegraph. Fantastic scoop. Uh, One of the best in years, really. And it's such a potentially game-changing story situation. But equally, it might not come to anything. That's to take nothing away from Sam and the story. Wonderful work. I've just seen a headline saying it's the great stitch-up, really. It's it's potentially a move by Manchester United, Liverpool and and Rick Parry of the EFL to try and change the face of English football forever in a way that we've not seen since the formation of the Premier League, which, of course, Rick Parry was heavily involved in. And I know of a huge amount of support from... From the lower leagues, especially in leagues one and two, within sections of the championship as well, and perhaps within elements of the Premier League. But that's nothing compared to the anger and the sort of disbelief and distrust from other Premier League clubs, many of the other 14, many executives in and around football with experience of the Premier League and EFL. Look, we know there is a fundamental problem here and we're going to get stuck into this. It needs to be solved, otherwise... English football is staring at an incredibly bleak future, which you could say it was staring at even before the COVID pandemic. And that's only worsened the situation. 
However, was this the right way to go about it? Almost like a military coup led by Parry, John Henry of Liverpool, uh, Ed Woodward, Manchester United and, and Joel Glazer there too. The sentiments I'm getting are that while change is needed, what they've done could cause irreparable damage to relationships especially for Rick Parry and I've just got off a call from a really good source before we started recording this podcast who says he thinks it's going to go absolutely nowhere there are ways of solving this there are ways of distributing money to the EFL in in such a time of need but this is not the way to do it. So David has contributed to this article on The Athletic as have Matt Slater and Adam Crafton, and they are the three voices that you are going to hear for the majority of this podcast. Do you want to do a timeline, Adam, uh, as best you can on how long these discussions have been going on and when they would come into play if they were to get through? Yeah, so as far as we know, conversations have been ongoing between the Manchester United owners, the Glazer family, as well as Executive Vice Chairman Ed Woodward, along with the Liverpool's lead investor at Fenway Sports Group, John W. Henry, as well as Mike Gordon. They've been going on, we believe, in in addition to Rick Parry, who at the time was not the EFL chairman, going on three years. Now, Rick Parry then becomes EFL chairman in 2019. Many of the proposals in these plans actually predate the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a lot of ideas about redistribution that Liverpool and Manchester United insist that they've been keen on for quite a long time. Now, of course, they get plenty in return. They get uh, to reduce the Premier League size from 20 to 18. They get to reimagine the playoff system. It becomes a 34-game season. There's more space for Champions League fixtures voting rights go into their favour. So they get a huge amount out of it. But in terms of the timescale, it's three years. And then adding into that, I think more recently, Chelsea have become more involved. Bruce Buck, senior executive at Chelsea, has taken a leading role. I don't think that Daniel Levy at Tottenham is unsupportive. I think that's probably maybe a generous way of putting it. Arsenal and Manchester City, a little bit harder to pin down their individual positions. And in terms of the timescale, well, the proposal, as we have seen it, the document, which I believe is the 18th version of the document, which shows how long they've been working on it, proposes that these things would come in for the 2022-23 season in terms of the changes to the Premier League, to the pyramid, to the way that things are distributed. But more immediately, given the COVID pandemic, it's offering more imminent bailout terms. So the Football League needs 250 million. There you go. The FA needs bringing together the national game, women's grassroots investment, Wembley Stadium, around 100 million in operational costs. All these different organisations that require funding in football would get an immediate bailout. So that would be the more short-term solution. The long-term idea is 2022-23, we would have an 18-team Premier League season. Matt Slater, I suppose the first question to you is, how relevant is it to... also mentioned that whilst Rick Parry is chairman of the Football League, he's former chief exec of the Premier League and of Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, very relevant. You know, Adam's right. This has been going on for a while. It's been going on between Liverpool and Manchester United, who, whilst their fan bases might not always see eye to eye, their ownership groups do. They're both American. They both see things through a very North American sport prism. They're both, I think, fed up with not getting their way now okay you could say not too bad you know that's just the way it is but they come at this from the point of view that they and their peer group of clubs the big ones uh, drive most of the revenue it's why people in north america and india and china etc 
care and watch and have made everyone wealthy. They look at the fact that I think it's something like 43 clubs have now sort of filled, if you like, that sort of bottom half over the years. And some of them come and go very quickly and get, get to make calls on their business the way they see it. You know, your Blackpools, your Bournemouths of this world, whatever, Swansea's. And they think, this can't be right. Philosophically, from a business point of view, this certainly isn't the way we're used to dealing with things at Major League Baseball or the NFL. So you've got that going on. And I think Adam's explained that pretty well. For Rick Parry, and Rick Parry is central to this, this goes a long way further back. He was the first chief executive of the Premier League. And I think very, very early on, 1995, apparently, he saw that that split, it wasn't perfect. It, it threw up unintended consequences. Perhaps some of them were intended, who knows? But it certainly threw up some things that he felt could be rectified. And the key one was the distribution of the pot of money that is, that is basically the TV rights. And, and, and a really quick fix for him straight away was to rebundle them. You know, so you had the top 20 clubs, who of course were always supposed to be 18, but chose not to do that. You know, Turkey's voting for Christmas and all that. Uh, they were they they wanted more control. They wanted a bigger share of the overall pot, and they got that. They got that in '92. In '95, Rick Parry was thinking, "Hold on a minute. We should sell the EFL's rights. We'll get more for everybody. We'll fix that problem over there that I think is going to get worse." And you know what? He was right. It has got worse. No one really foresaw the rise of the, the dramatic rise of the Premier League's international rights. A, a nice problem to have, you know. Very much part. A crucial part of the success story of the league but but that has brought issues along the way so rick parry has i think had this in his mind for, well i know he's had it in his mind for about 25 years it's been there percolating away he hasn't been underhand or secretive about this the efl knew what they were getting with rick parry when they interviewed him in 2019 there were people in the room that remembered him saying this in the mid 90s let's get that out there rick parry the fact that he's been at this for a long time, the fact that he remembers the beginning of the Premier League, the fact that he already identified a problem, that the pyramid was no longer to be smooth, that we're going to have great big steps and chasms appearing. This has been on his mind pre-COVID, way, way, way pre-COVID. And then, of course, you've got the Liverpool connection. He goes to Liverpool. So, yes, there is a relationship between him and, if you like, some people say Liverpool Mafia, but certainly, if you like, Liverpool... Uh, minded people so that that's the that's the, how he got to know John W Henry a few years ago but this has been as, as, as Adam said and as David said as well driven by Liverpool and Manchester United other members of the big six have have had an input along the way it has been drawn up and redrawn you know 18 versions it's supposed to be a working document we can argue and I'm sure we'll get into it about the bits that are really important to them the bits that are non-negotiable, i.e. what's really driving this for them. But there's plenty of good stuff in there that if you are a supporter of a national league, league two, league one, women's club, you, whatever, you will like a lot of this. There's a price to be paid for anything that's good, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. It's now up to sort of every member of the football community to decide whether the price of this particular deal is too much and you know for, for many people I spoke to it is too much and I would agree with them but can we walk it back what can we shave from this 
Matt, given Rick Parry knows the Premier League so well, as you've laid out, did he not anticipate, or how did he not anticipate, that there would be such a sort of vitriolic reaction from the other 14? They're not going to let the top six dish out their money to the EFL. That sort of resistance could bring this whole idea down and also springing this upon the likes of Richard Masters, Gary Hoffman at the at the Premier League, people at the FA as well to, to a certain extent that there have been suggestions that Greg Clark has been part of this is perhaps going to kill the proposal in its infancy. Good question. Right, so... The, the... Let's speak frankly here, we're all among friends. So there's various theories as to how this got out there, and this is just the dark arts, isn't it, of communication. Did did uh, did Parry and or Liverpool Man United leak this just to get this out there and provoke a great big row, and then we'll we'll end up uh, agreeing on something that they quite like? Or was this leaked by people who wanted to get this out there and kill it, and you know get their get their kind of tanks all aligned and get this out there in the worst possible light? I think I think it was the latter I think this was leaked to hurt it and I'm not taking sides here you know this is this is all you know fair and love and war and Parry and Liverpool and Manchester United were not quite ready for it um, when it when it uh, became apparent that it was going to come out and they had to scramble to um, to um, speak in defense of it fine all right and and we all know how yesterday played out it's gonna be really interesting how the next few days play out if, if as I expect we will start to see people speak for it and against it it's already started rick parry is a big boy and uh, has been around long enough to look after himself i think it's going to be very hard for him to be efl uh, chairman for much longer does he get to go having achieved this or something very close to this would that be you know one of the prices that he would pay yeah he'd take that deal right now and that and that that would I think he would see as fixing something he's wanted to fix for a long time. Can he now work with Richard Masters and Gary Hoffman and other Premier League people? Doesn't look very likely to me. Does he care? Because this is the thing, right? Whilst he has wanted to do this long-term reset, he does actually have a really acute problem. You know, he, he, he responds to his 72. And he genuinely feels, and people I speak to genuinely feel, that some of them, we don't know how many, will not survive this season. He is obliged to do something. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. I wonder whether within all of your conversations with so many different people, whether you found more resistance from people connected to Premier League clubs probably outside of the big six, or whether it's come from EFL clubs, more resistance. Uh, and the reason I ask that, Adam, is because in this article, according to this plan, 
Premier League clubs currently receive 92% of distributable revenues, but it would be reduced to 75% under the proposals. 25% would instead go to the EFL. Per club, this would raise championship income by 15.5 million, League One income by 3.5 million, League Two income by 2.3 million. So you can understand, actually, probably within the EFL, a greater support for this plan than maybe from the other 14 that are currently in the Premier League. For sure. And I don't think Rick Power is going to have a problem getting. I think I'm right in saying he would need a two-thirds majority to support it in the across the the three tiers of the football league. I don't think you'll have any problem at all. Agreed. I spoke yesterday to a number of people in at League One, League Two level. They are desperate, desperate to get through this season. They are desperate to make their businesses, their football clubs sustainable. They see this as a vital source of redistribution and income. The issue about, you know, okay, Manchester United will have a bit more power. For most of these clubs, that will never matter. All they are interested in is surviving and being sustainable. As for the rest of it, well, they don't really care that much. And, you know, when people talk about self-interest, there's self-interest there as well, even at League One and League Two level, because they just want to get by. And I think we are even seeing in the championship a changing attitude from that casino roulette attitude of let's gamble it all on getting into the promised land of the Premier League. I think there's increasingly less examples of that in the current championship where you see owners who are, you know, hugely ambitious, desperate to to crack the Premier League and are going to spend it all to get there. I think we're actually at a point where probably there's the fewest number of those clubs for quite some time in the Championship. There isn't a Leeds or Aston Villa or Newcastle. Um, Okay, you could say there's a Forest that's a real sleeping giant, but they also aren't investing hugely to get into the Premier League. So I think initially when I heard the the proposals come through, my instinct was surely there's going to be a raft of clubs in the Championship who see it as harder, by definition, if there's less places in the Premier League, to get into the top flight and to try and compete and break into that top six, top eight, whatever you want to call it now. But I think a lot of clubs are actually seeing, to, to use that awful term, the the project big picture um, of, of what's happening here. Um, and Got project and big picture into the same. I know, bit. I know. Um, <laughs> So there you go, spinning for them. I do think that there is a broad support in in the Football League where it becomes really difficult for the Premier... You know, we've seen opposition from the Premier League centrally in terms of Premier League HQ. There's opposition from the government and there's opposition from the bottom 14 teams in in the Premier League, I think it's fair to say. I think the Premier League centrally and the government are mostly annoyed because they didn't know about it. I think a large element of that is people in football in important positions and in government, they like to know what's happening. They like to be in control. They like to be, you know, the masterminds behind ideas. And when they're not, and when it's sprung upon them, that's quite unsettling. On top of that, we have this issue where these proposals can only pass if 14 Premier League clubs support them or can only pass conventionally if that happens. If I'm Burnley, Southampton, Crystal Palace, West Ham, I, I, I just can't see why you would vote for this. It is against their self-interest. But this idea that you know they're acting in the bigger picture of English football, well, yes, to a certain extent, because they can say it prevents it from being a big six closed shop. But the flip side of that is, you know, it's a bit of a pain for 14 clubs in the Premier League, maybe six clubs at the top of the championship. But it does also protect long-term a huge amount of football league clubs. So while my instinct when I first saw this idea was to think it's a power grab, it's a land grab, and certainly there's elements of it that I would want watering down, 
I do increasingly think it is the starting point of a negotiation towards a settlement that could work quite well for vast swaths of, of the pyramid. That's what I was going to ask Matt. Is this actually a sort of a very militant, gung-ho starting point to bring about the sort of reform that is needed in some kind of compromise eventually? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's the sort of basic negotiations, isn't it? You know, you, you, you go extreme and then walk it back. I think I think Adam's absolutely right. Look, the big losers here are bottom half Premier League teams, right? Going from 20 to 18, seeing that distribution sort of tweaked slightly, not as much as is being briefed by some of the people, of the critics of this plan. There's this idea that the current distribution for Premier League is basically 1.7 to 1. So the, the top team in the league gets about 1.7 multiple on a ratio basis to 1. Now, that's the best in Europe. It's, it's one of the reasons why the Premier League has been successful. It's got this sort of tight distribution model that is supposed to make the league more competitive. Right? So lots of the teams are good. So it's just not like La Liga in the bad old days where Barcelona and Real were so much better than everyone else. It really was a procession and, and is replicated elsewhere around Europe. That has been the Premier League's USP. Now, this model, and there are, it is a bit technical and, and I won't get into it. There are sort of three different options about how you sort of divvy up the money, but they have been remarkably well modelled, I'm led to believe, and if nothing else, Fenway are quite good at this, Liverpool are quite good at this. They see it going to more like 1 to 2.25. Now, okay, that's not as good, not as fair and equitable as 1 to 1.7, but do you know what? It was 1 to 2.25 in 1992. And it was the explosion of international rights, which for the best part of 25 years they gave out equally because no one thought they were going to be worth that much, that tightened that ratio. So actually to 1 to 1.6, which was a previous row where the big six got really fed up and went, we're losing all these votes. And in the end, Richard Scudamore managed to, as his parting gift to the Premier League, he thought keeping it together for forever and a day, or certainly for you know the foreseeable future, he managed to sort of just nudge it out of back again to one to one point seven. Anyway, so that is one of the another of the reasons why, if you are not a member of the big six, you hate this. Okay, more money for the for the big boys, too fewer places in the league, and you know lots of sort of potential thin end or wedge stuff about where are the big six really going. You know they want to play more preseason friendlies, they want to play more UEFA club competition stuff. They might even want to start playing that on weekends. They want to play it pre Christmas because that's where the, you know, the, the, the rights holders like it. So lots of little things that get them worried about European Super Leagues. When you speak to people in the EFL, and we have all been speaking to people in the EFL and texting them what have you, absolutely League One and League Two for the reasons that, that both David and Adam have outlined, there's a lot to like. We just get more money. My God, we just get to be sustainable. And if we want to do stuff to our stadium, we can do stuff to our stadium. If you want to do stuff with player development and have a player trading model, we can do that. It's just a no-brainer, really, from a financial point of view for League One, League Two clubs. No, no, no doubt about it. Where it gets, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of we've touched upon the control issue, the governance issue. You, were, you really are taking an enormous leap of faith here that you think those big six clubs are always going to be this friendly and nice and, <laughs> and love the pyramid this much. You know, John W. Henry might, might get the romance of it right now, but does he, is he going to get the romance of it in five years' time? 
Is he going to tweak it? This is the big worry coming here because for all they're going, okay, well, we get more money now, but the League Cup goes, so immediately you lose one of your two cup competitions of a chance to draw a big club and get your money in that way. And this proposal is also coming off the back of a week where it was talked about B teams in the EFL. And therefore, if you are a club who's getting whatever money it is at the moment, that's great. But in five years' time, you might be a club towards the bottom of League Two and you might be being suggested that a B team replaces you. I mean, B teams is massive. And we had Ferran Soriano floating it again last week, Man City chief exec. They're not in here. Again, you could start to sort of look at some of the stuff they're talking about with relaxation of the loan system. There's a little line in there that got me worried about League One and League Two clubs wouldn't be required to have academies anymore. They could have academies if they want them and they're now going to be given the money to have even better academies if they want to, but they're not required to do it. And I thought, hmm. Now I spoke to some EFL people about this and they're like, don't worry about it. They're just giving us more money or potentially this is more money, right? Then it's up to me what I do with it. I think this issue around having this faith in the big six, giving them all of this control, control to sack the chief exec of the Premier League, the control to vet NFL style who takes over clubs. I mean, that's an absolutely woe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Aston Villa wants to be bought or Newcastle wants to be bought by someone who might challenge them. You know, with deeper pockets than them. Um, yeah, we might vet them and you know and have a look at them. Well, yeah, I bet you'd like to do that. So a remarkable amount of control. But the point I wanted to make was the the big losers here, undoubtedly bottom half of the Premier League. When you talk to people in the Championship, which is always really interesting, clubs who really would like who think of themselves like that anyway. I'm a Premier League club. I'm just not in the Premier League right now. What's what they're saying is Palace. Uh, Brighton, etc., can do one. Because for the last few weeks, the plan B's and plan C's, the theories they've been getting about the rescue package have been to hamstring and to handicap championship clubs forever to ring fence the positions of people in the Premier League right now. So the Steve Parrish article in the Sunday Times could not have gone down worse in the championship nor could Sean Dyche's comments. So all of this idea that, oh, this is awful for people in the bottom half of the Premier League. I can tell you right now that some people in the EFL told me, oh, right, well, I'm going to read it then because I quite like that. I like the sound of that. If it's if it's annoyed Brighton and Palace and West Brom and Fulham, hmm, I'll, I'll give it a good read. Yeah, but it's the bottom half of the Premier League, the other 14, so to speak, who hold crucial power in this despite any kind of mounting momentum from the lower leagues. And if it was to come to a vote, the top six would need much more support. So how does that square? And and also this idea of potentially breaking away, the top six breaking away and going along with the, the EFL and forming some new kind of league, I, I was told uh, by a good contact that that would cause absolute chaos because it would almost be like an unregulated, unlicensed league that wouldn't then get to play in European competition. It wouldn't be sanctioned by UEFA and FIFA. So if it feels like, although they may be in a minority, the other 14 hold great sway in this. Adam? The breakaway is the absolute nuclear option last resort. It was interesting. You know, yesterday there were suggestions that the EFL chairman, Rick Parry, had suggested to those big six clubs well look if the premier league you can't get it through there walk away and we'll set up a new league whether it's under the banner of the football league or whatever and rick parry was then asked in the press conference yesterday directly if he'd if he'd said that he declined to comment sources close to big six clubs some were saying don't rule it out 
others were saying we really wouldn't want that to happen. I think it would be interesting if it went to a vote in the Premier League and they lost the vote and there was no alternatives on the table and no sign of a negotiation, it's not unfeasible. It's not what people want to do. If they were to walk away from the Premier League, which they could do quite easily actually under Premier League regulations, there's a a clause in there that says if you give notice by December the 31st this year, you can quit by in time for the start of the next campaign. So it's in the handbook. They're able to do it if they want to, but it would cause huge problems. But if they were to do it, those big six, you know, you talk about would UEFA let them in? Well, would UEFA want a competition without Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, Chelsea, etc.? Probably not. So they would probably let them in in some way. And then you're talking about what do the other 14 clubs do? I think, do they just go off on their own or do they come to the view that they've got no choice but to go along with it if those big six walk away. So the big six know that they are in a real position of strength. They know they are the attraction in terms of international rights, in terms of UEFA competitions, um, in terms of generating the interest. It would obviously be the ultimate test of it because what if those 14 actually said, no, we are the Premier League and we're going to do what, we're going to carry on with it. But like I say, this is the absolute nuclear option. And my instinct is this is the start of a negotiation that could lead to significant watering down that ends up working in some way for everyone, but that would need significant compromises from everyone. I agree. I mean, it's not going to pass, right? Okay. So there's no there's no way the Premier League, as it's currently composed, is going to vote for this. So then, okay, we have to ask, which bits of this plan are the most important to Liverpool, Manchester United and their silent partners? Which bits do they absolutely have to keep? I don't know, is, is the honest answer. I want to find out. We're going to find out. Is it this issue of control? Is it this issue of losing these votes? Is it the, is it the straw that broke the camel's back, the five subs rule that really annoyed them? Because it's been happening for years where the big six so clearly wanted to do something which they felt was a no-brainer that the rest of Europe's doing, UEFA's doing it for its cup competitions, and they lose a vote. They lose another vote, 9-11. 11-9, I can't remember which way it was. But the point is, they didn't get two-thirds because clubs in the Premier League thought, no, not having that, we're going to stick with three subs because five subs, they've got deeper squads, we'll lose. That annoyed them. And in the same way that other little votes have been annoying them. Now, is that the most important thing? Or is it going to 18 clubs and scrapping the Carabao Cup and creating a bit more space to do those nice lucrative things that they want to do that will really make the difference for them? that quite frankly, if they are scrapping parachute payments and being and giving a bit more money down the pyramid, it really doesn't matter because we're the big six and we're going to make it elsewhere. There's another little interesting bit buried in the detail here. They want to have a bit of a carve out on the international rights. They want the opportunity to really test the size of their brand, i.e. give us some of these international games to flog ourselves via our own platforms. You know, so that is the breakup of the collective selling model that has worked so well for 28 years. Again, there's just it's those little devilish bits. They're in there. It is the right to sell. So you know, we're gonna have we're gonna have the same. We'll go to 18 games, right? 18 yeah. teams. Sorry, we'll have 34 games to sell. Can we have some of them? I think they say that they want. Is it a quarter, Adam? I think it's eight. I think it's eight. Eight games. They've been hinting and talking about this for a while. Yeah. I, I know in the last rights package, um, a few of them said, "Can we have one?" Because we want to, we want to test the streaming model. Can we have one? Just give us one to sell ourselves. So you know they've put a number in it. They want eight. Now, if you are if you are not a big six club, you are immediately going, oh my god, no. 
because they've been wanting to do this for ages. This is the Barca and Real story. You let them have their own TV deals, we are done. We are finished. Because Liverpool-Bayern is a bigger game than Liverpool-Burnley or Liverpool City or Liverpool whatever. Liverpool anyone is a bigger game than, 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 than Palace versus West Brom. What, what, we, we can't have this. So that's interesting. Now, if they were to get that, if they were to get 18 teams, no Carabao Cup, um, you know, late start of the season, you know, they get the international rights, you know, you start doing this little shopping list of things they'd quite like. Will that be enough? I don't know. Or is it actually, no, do you know what? It, all that other stuff is nice to have. We want control. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Am I right as well in saying here in all of the all of this plan, Adam, they want the they want the football league to have a salary cap. They want salary cap for championship league one and league two, but not for themselves. Yes. I think it's hard salary cap for the championship. League one and league two have pretty much brought one in anyway, haven't they? Um and I, I think part of that is, well, we're giving you a load of money. Um, but they want financial fair play. They want UEFA style financial yes. fair play in the Premier League. So they want a st- they want a tougher financial fair play regime in the Premier League. Yes, and they want it to mirror UEFA's financial fair play. And I, I think one of the interesting thing in the things in the days to come will be trying to establish what Manchester City's position on that is. We know how they felt over the years about financial fair play. We also know that they've adapted a more sustainable model, as you know, David spoke to Omar Barada from Man City last week, and that was something which was clear from from that interview on the Athletic. So. I think that's going to be one one to watch. But yeah, clearly they're giving out a load of money and they're saying, well, you know, we want to know, we want to check how you're spending it as well. So again, you know, what how does that make an ambitious investor feel about buying a middling championship club? You know, if he's told you can spend a bit but not enough to to really ever challenge and get any of the sort of really sexy rewards that you can get in the Premier League at the top end of it. That of course is one of the challenges, but at the same time the championship has been a mess for far too long. Owners are losing 10 to 15 million pounds a year. The regulations haven't worked. Football league clubs were going out of business before COVID. COVID is a very good excuse at times for clubs in the football league because, you know, it sort of puts a cloud over everything that was going wrong before it. So, and that's what I go back to. A lot of these proposals predated the pandemic. It's just escalated what's happening. Given the potential upsides, Matt, for many clubs, especially lower down the so-called pyramid. Why didn't the likes of Paris and Manchester United, Liverpool, go and canvas more carefully in a more uh, sympathetic way to the lower Premier League clubs? Somebody explained to me that United used to be brilliant at these politics when David Gill was there. And it even extends to Gill would sit on opposition tables at Old Trafford when when away teams would come there and and they would dine together. And and it was little things like that that used to curry favour when United wanted power around the Premier League table. They would get extra votes as a result of how well they were regarded. But that just isn't the case anymore. If they had worked on this you've talked about it being a a long-term proposal, but they haven't actually gone into the people that matter and got them on side before launching this out of the blue. And it's almost like a lot of the shock has put people off as opposed to the fine detail. 
I think you may have answered your own question there, David. In that United, United used to be brilliant at this kind of thing when David Gill was there. <laughs> Trust you, Chappers. Yeah, that's my Look. that's my one moment of sin and weekly cynicism as regards United. We'll take Back that. to you, Matt. Yeah, no. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, well, I think that's. I think it's a really good question. Um, look, would they have liked to have done this differently? Yes, I think they would. There's an awful lot of anger within the EFL. This idea that, well, the EFL haven't asked us for anything yet. We've been waiting for them to come to us with detailed plans. That, frankly, doesn't really stack up for me. I don't I don't know how much detail the Premier League chief executives and chairs needed. Did they need receipts? But Rick Parry, if we're gonna if we're gonna name him, has been pretty clear a number of times, including appearing before DCMS, that number hasn't really changed. It's, you know, we lost about 50 million in, in, in gate receipts at the tail end of last year. And if we don't have fans this year, we're going to lose 200 million. I think he said that number about half a dozen times on the record and numerous times in briefings. And it really, really hasn't changed. And, um, you know, he's had regular meetings with DCMS, with the, with the government and, and with Richard Masters, his counterparts, um, at the Premier League. So this idea that they haven't made a detailed request and they haven't explained to Premier League clubs what they need and why they need it and when they need it, right? So that I, I'm just not buying that, this idea, well, you know, well, you know, what are they doing coming up with these secret plans when all they had to do was come and explain to us why, what they needed? Well, just No, that's, that's not true. What we've had, though, is this situation where various Premier League clubs and EFL clubs have just been floating ideas. Is it, is it you know, Premier League 2? Do we sell a stake to a private equity company? Do we just keep begging the government and hope that they'll change their mind? Does the Premier League guarantee a loan? Lots of ideas. None of them have really gained much momentum because there are pros and cons to all of them. The personal relationship thing, I think, is really, really interesting. Rick Perry's made a good start. You know, he, he joined the EFL at a really rocky time in its history. We've, as we've all said, there were problems way before COVID came along. And uh, he's not going to please everyone. He's fallen out with a few, but he's doing a pretty good job. It would be my take on it from what the people I talked to. He, he you know, he, it's a really tough job to hold that 72 together. Very broad church. And he's doing a reasonable job. And they, and they like, they feel that he has their back. I mean, it's really interesting you made the joke about David Gill because Man United, let's be honest, have changed in every possible way. And... Do the Glazers have those personal relationships with the rest of football? Does John W. Henry, who is by, you know, I, I understand, you know, can be a bit of an absentee landlord at times, can be a bit shy, maybe, you know, but super switched on, really, really bright. You know, has, has he really built those relationships here? I mean, no, I don't think so. Does, does he feel that's his job too? I mean, that's maybe a different debate. There was always going to be a problem around something even nearly this revolutionary and radical in that have they built that power base that that kind of old-fashioned politics have they made have they got those friendships out there and i you know i think i think we know they haven't now because it's just blown up in the way it's blown up i think matt that is i mean you've struck upon one of one of the key issues here and one of the things that i think most people in football at all levels haven't quite switched on to yet is that that there are not going to be real winners in a, in a in the pandemic you know everyone is going to have to compromise at, at some stage and it then becomes a question of, okay, we've come up with proposals. Who is there that is best and effective to then articulate that vision and win collective support? Now, Rick Parry's gone out and done Man United and Liverpool's bidding yesterday. I don't think that's going to be enough to win the hearts and minds of the general public, of media opinion. And what it needs is really a front man at a, 
Man United, Liverpool were all the big sticks that's able to come out and argue, and have the strength of courage to argue their case because they have got they have got a case. They are going to be bailing out a load of clubs that need it. But as has so often been the case during this period in the pandemic, too many of these owners and executives are not prepared to articulate their vision and their argument. The problem is, though, Adam, by using it by using it in the context of the pandemic, it look and I'm. You know, by putting this question, it worryingly makes me sound like the culture secretary, which I definitely don't want to do. But, you know, it does look like an opportunistic power grab. Of course it is. But they're also giving out, you know, they they would argue, you know, they're giving out a huge amount of money. Or someone could say to them, you're making a power grab. Or they could say, we're also protecting everyone. So that argument will run and run. I think the key point from the government point of view is they don't want to fund a bailout. I'll give you an example. Last week, my flatmate, who has absolutely no interest in football, walked in, we're watching the news, and the sports coverage went from Arsenal have signed a player for 45 million to Premier League and EFL talking in talks with government over 250 million pound bailout. Those two things aren't recon- uh, reconcilable, I don't think, with public opinion. You can't, on the one hand, be seen as the industry that's continuing to spend and spend and spend and have things its own way. And then on the other hand, at a time when all industries are pleading for money, say we've, we, you know, plead poverty. So I think there's going to have to be, that the funding is going to have to come from the Premier League in some way. And the Premier League clubs are only going to do it if it's beneficial to them. And that then goes back to, can all the 20 clubs agree with each other? The role of the FA, we, we briefly mentioned Greg Clark, according to the Athletic article, he has been aware of these discussions as Greg Clark, the chairman. The FA has a golden share in the Premier League and therefore the ability to veto changes to regulations on promotions or relegation. It could kill the proposals before they're even off the ground, the article says, and they're yet to outline a clear position. But this very proposal is offering to give money to the FA. Yeah, it was very noticeable yesterday. A flurry of statements came in first from the, uh, I think the Premier League and then from the the government's uh, DCMS. The FL did a statement. Rick Parry did a press conference. The FA were pretty quiet. The Premier League did include the FA on their statement, but the FA weren't giving out clear public statements yesterday. It It is understood that Greg Clark's been privy to discussions at different points since 2017 it's not clear what his level of backing or endorsement or support is the Premier League seem pretty confident that they've got the FA on their side but I think they would be a lot more settled if a statement was to come out in the next 48 hours to say hang on a minute this isn't for us but Matt as we're recording this there's news of the FA's golden share uh, being used to block any kind of radical Mm -hmm. proposals Well, I mean, they have that right. They've had that since the beginning. But they, you know, it's been often much talked about, you know, when would they would they wield this nuclear option for them? Um, It it remains to be seen. Look, the the FA, I I find their role in this um, or sort of not in this over the last few months to be fascinating. They seem to have just shrunk in terms of their leadership, in terms of their status. If it's not directly about Wembley or the national team, where are they? There's plenty in this document that is just brilliant for them. Going to 18, um, scrapping the Carabao Cup. They don't care about the Carabao Cup. It ring fences the, the FA Cup as our domestic cup competition. There's loads in here they like. The one question mark which I still have, which nobody close to the big six was able to actually answer yesterday, is that while there is a big increase in funding 
for the women's game and grassroots. There is the, the document says that neither the Premier League nor the FA would own a new independent women's league, which then opens up the women's super league or the women's championship to external investment funding. And if I was in private equity, I would be pretty cautious about investing in the women's super league in terms of, and also placing, you know, the women's game under that guise. I think it's, you know, it is something that needs the guarantee and the security of the Premier League or FA behind it personally. And this money is evidently available because they're saying they could give this now. Money for football league clubs, money for grassroots, money for women's football, money to help the FA. So they could just give it now. I mean, it's, this is all, I mean it is all about power. That's what it boils down to because this money is there. It is, but that is all done on sort of kind of forward planning. So that is basically that this money being there is contingent on going to 18 clubs, scrapping parachute payments. Scrapping parachute payments is absolutely crucial to this. Chappers, I mean, it doesn't really work if you do, do that because because it's such a huge sum of money. So, so that's where a lot of this this largesse, if you like, comes from. Do you think if they didn't sort of railroad this idea through Matt or propose it in such a dramatic way, then it would have just become mothballed like pretty much every other proposal in English football? And at a time of crisis, it took something drastic to actually bring it into the public consciousness and national sports debate well you know if we were going to sort of turn rick parry into a hero they, yeah absolutely he's been he's been the brave man hasn't he um you know others you know but i'm going to say no i'm not going to, I'm not going to make rick parry a hero he's you know, opportunistic as as are liverpool and man united look i think um i think of the fact i find the fa's reluctance to to really come out and explain and lead to be interesting and telling we've already discussed the fact that liverpool and Manchester united these days are owned by americans who who perhaps aren't confident comfortable don't feel they need to whatever it might be that's a bit of a problem with this um i think the government's reaction yesterday was remarkable and not in a good way you can't for me spends three, four, five months telling football to sort it out, telling the Premier League this is on you, to then, when a well worked out, whether you agree with it, disagree with it, and when I say well, I mean it's been, there's, there's thought here. It addresses in great detail a lot of stuff that we have been talking about independently of COVID for years and years and years. So it's a well thought through plan and immediately dismiss it out of hand as some sort of kind of not liking it because it was done in a secretive way. I mean, well, sorry, how, how, how do ideas happen? You know, someone has an idea. To, you know, you 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 know, you build consensus. You speak to someone who's like-minded. Is is that their biggest objection here? To come out and be that strong against this idea just because it was done in a secretive way? I, I just you know, I just I just thought the government's response was 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 weak and childish. And it all goes back to control. All right. Well, let's have a good, let's have a good old proper fair debate about control, which I am very <laughs> alarmed about, and that six nine thing is is awful. <laughs> but you know, I like ninety percent of it. So if 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 it, if this all fails or you know falls away because you're absolutely determined to have, you know, big six calling the shots for forever. All right. Well, then you're not serious, are you? Then so you you showed me something amazing, and you're taking it away. Right. Great. Don't ever do that again. I'll. You've disappointed me. But if that is a negotiation tactic, okay, you can have some of this good stuff if we can have some of our stuff. 
Oh, brilliant. The easiest way to finish this would be to go, do you think it will go through yes and no to all three of you? But the the fact of the matter is um, there are going to be lots of twists and turns and negotiating and votes, I would imagine. So to ask you now to think whether it would go through or not might be slightly unfair. I don't know. What do you think? Do you want to say yes or no? or Or should we leave that for another time? My view is no. I've become too wearied by English football being mired in debate and not enough action and I think the same is going to happen on this occasion I don't even know how you bring about action on this sort of thing with all the contrasting egos agendas opinions and priorities Adam I think a version of this will go through because the Premier League is now well Manchester United Liverpool have now shown that the funding is there. So why on earth would the government come up with the money for a bailout? A version of it has to go through or clubs will go to the wall, but it has to be severely watered down. And as we've been saying, all sorts of things like control, those top six clubs have to be far more sensible, far more reasonable. But a version of it has to go through or you dread to think what will happen. Yeah, I agree. Version 18 of Project Big Picture isn't going through. (laughs) But I don't know, version 23, 24, don't know how many more revisions does it need, but there's something here. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, not even Project Big Picture is big enough uh, to knock Arsenal news off the podcast <laughs> <laughs> is it? <laughs> I knew this was coming. Uh, no, and and it would be wrong of us not to touch upon... Um, oh, it would the, be. It'd be terribly wrong of us not to. The gunnosaurus uh, Arsenal. Right, so Mesut Ozil is in your column today. Where are we up to? He was sort of thrust back into the spotlight again last week, despite not playing because of the fact he was left out of Arsenal's Europa League squad for the group stages and that he offered to pay uh, for... <laughs> the man in the Gunnosaurus suit to be re-employed by Arsenal, uh, which came off the back of James McNicholas' story in in my column that we discussed on here last week. Uh, And this week in the column, we revealed that Mesut Ozil, at the end of September, was paid a a loyalty bonus in the region of £8 million. Um, That all stems back to the contract that he signed in January 2018. Um, And I don't exactly know how the money is moved around, but... Many players around this time of year, once transfer windows have shut, okay, it was a bit later this year, but many players at Arsenal receive what are termed loyalty bonuses. And when Ozil signed that contract, I think Arsenal would have really hoped that he would be such a success that come this time in his final year, then he would be deserving of a loyalty bonus. They would have wanted him to have stayed until at least the end of his contract. It hasn't worked out quite like they would have wanted. They've been keen to move him on. And what we reveal is that one of the potential reasons why that might have been the case, as well as footballing reasons and the well-documented situation around the pay cut that he rejected during the pandemic, is this major amount of money that went to him in the region of £8 million just before the transfer window shut. It's yet another element to this story that people are actually quite weary and fatigued by now. It'd be really interesting to see if Ozil is named in the uh, Premier League squad. I think that will be announced by the Premier League along with the other 19 clubs on the 20th of October. If he's not named in that, then goodness me, he could be available for 
League Cup and FA Cup or the, the second half of the season in, in the Europa League. He's been very clear that he's not going anywhere until the end of his contract in, in June 2021. It's just such a sad mess, isn't it? It really is. It's just is. such a yeah. sad mess. In every which way you look at it, from every perspective, and I know people will go, well, you know, Ozil's getting hundreds of thousands of pounds every week and the bonus and this, that and the other, but I'm guessing he wants to play football. Well, he said that in the interview we yeah. did with him in August. He said he's fit and available and training hard and still loves the club and wants to represent them. But he doesn't seem to be part of Arteta's plans. Um, we know what Mikel Arteta says publicly about these decisions being all on merit and um, all related to your performance in training and on the pitch. Ozil clearly wants a chance to show his quality on the pitch, but it, it doesn't seem he's going to get it. Now, we don't know if he was sort of being frozen out of the team selection so that Arsenal would hope that he would agree to move on before the transfer window shuts, but that hasn't happened. Now, they may want to readdress it in January, but we've got no indication that he would be interested in that. And it would be really sad if a player of his quality who's offered a lot to Arsenal, Real Madrid previously, the Germany national team, just fizzles out. But we'll see how it develops. You know, he came back from the the cold under Unai Emery and, and did feature again and played really well. He played in all 10 of Mikel Arteta's games after taking charge and before football was shut down for the COVID uh, lockdown in March. So I don't think this is the complete end of the story, but... It is a sorry tale the way it's it's manifested itself. We also mentioned in the column that William Saliba, uh, that's been a really difficult situation too for him and Arsenal. He went on loan to Saint Etienne after signing for Arsenal in 2019, and he hasn't featured yet. He it's been a slow integration, much slower than expected, and he was set to join Saint Etienne for a second season, but they couldn't complete the paperwork in time for the international deadline, so he stayed put. Lots of speculation whether he would still join a championship club before Friday's deadline on the domestic front. And my information is that he won't. There's a good chance he'll be registered in Arsenal's Premier League squad, given a chance, hopefully, for him and for Arsenal. And at the earliest, depart Arsenal in January if things still aren't working out well. On loan, that would be. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Cheers, guys. Cheers. 